0: Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. We record each episode before a live audience. There's only one rule, no sound bites. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm the tech culture editor at Ars Technica.
1: I'm Sarus Farivar. I'm the senior business editor at Ars Technica.
0: And we are super lucky to have with us in the hot seat, Norm Chan, who is the founder of... You're the founder of Tested. A founder of Tested, a producer there, just a fantastic maker and observer of geek life. So I usually start by asking our guests about their origin story. But what I wanted to ask you is kind of more about the origin story of Tested. And I was curious about whether... When you guys were thinking of the idea to do this site, were were you thinking that there was something like lacking or crappy about current tech journalism where you said like okay, we know that we can do this thing that's not being done?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because tech journalism is where we originated from back in 2010, the co-founder of uh, co-editor of Tested Will Smith, and I found the site not that Will Smith. And um, <laughs> We came from computer magazines. Uh, we both were editors. He was actually my boss at a uh, maximum PC magazine. And it was when t- 2010, if you remember, like iPhone had been out for a couple of years. We'd seen a lot of blogs. Will actually came from Ars Technica. He was an editor there before he worked at the magazine. Because uh, he's the best. And he's done, right. he's done everything. <laughs> um, and. We just wanted to get away from cynical tech coverage and snarky tech coverage, which we saw in a lot of places. And so we decided to start this website. Uh, We actually were paired up with like a video game website and a movie website, and they had this wiki infrastructure, which we never ended up putting and tested. But we've since evolved and pivoted and iterated, and we're a completely different animal. Like, you don't, we still do some tech coverage, but we're really about like the things you talk about, maker culture, science culture, and where art and technology intersects.
1: How do you feel like making, because I feel like some of your videos are, dare I say, I don't know, outlandish? Like they're very kind of flashy, but in like a fun way. Why is like video for you the medium versus writing versus podcast versus animation versus whatever else? Like why is that the way that you want to do the work that you do?
2: Well, I think video is just the medium right now. Uh uh-huh. And the medium's always changing, right? Uh-huh. You know, everyone who's worked in media and has wanted to talk and share their ideas about the things they love, whether it's technology or movies or science, it's just finding those platforms. And we came from print media, and then we, you know, we started, tested was a blog, um, and we did some video, and again, back in 2010, uh, you know, YouTube was around, obviously, but there was no, like, we barely shot video on our phones. Uh, we used flip cameras. Remember that? Yeah, the, oh yeah. The, you know, HD single you know, button. Yeah, single yeah. button. We had those, and the tools that we got to produce the content, make videos, make podcasts, ended up being the things we were excited to cover. So cameras, DSLRs, video cameras, and and so we enjoyed using those. And so and, and the platforms to share those, whether it was YouTube or Vimeo. Um, our own content, our own video distribution platforms, those got more powerful and cheaper and that's where the audience ended up being. So, you know, if we had unlimited resources and wanted to tell stories in any way possible, we would want to have like a team of writers and also do, you know, uh, serialized podcasts and video and full-length documentaries. But because of the structure of where our audience is right now and the size of our team, these kind of internet videos that fit on YouTube and also on our own site, that's just where we make content best.
0: There's a lot of talk among media types, media nerds like us, now that print is, I mean, it's perennially the story that text is dying and there's something else coming along. So it used to be back in the ye olde times, uh, print is dying and now it's all on the web. And now um, among people who write for the web, uh, you constantly hear uh, the web is dying. It's all video. It's not that the web is dying, although maybe it is. But but actually, like written like written words are dying, and so everything has We're to be. We're gonna be, be video. out of a job soon. In, I know. Oh, video. and then I hear video is dying.
2: Live streaming, you know, and it's a different form video. You know, uh, yeah. YouTube videos dying, 10-second, fifteen second social video. You know, video with subtitles. That's that's the future. So it's all Snapchat. So it's, or, or a Facebook video. That's that's what you know. Everyone wants these platforms to be on. I don't know about you guys, but I consume all that stuff, right? I still subscribe to magazines. I still read online. And I think you find different types of content, different levels of thoughtfulness, maybe. Some, you know, there are benefits of video. It's really easy to make right now. Anyone can make a video with their phone, can upload it to YouTube, can share it. You can make a vlog and you can get a lot of, a lot of, a big audience. Yeah. But with written text, maybe you're more committed to it. It's, it's, for now, it's more indexable. I love, Reading articles because I can search through them. Yeah, um, it's something true. that I don't think video has figured out yet, searching, but it's going to get there. Right. And then something that's printed that I find in a magazine, well, that's committed to the page. That's still, I think, more document of record today than a blog post or even a video is.
0: So do you think it's true that video, maybe that writing isn't dying, but that video is ascendant now in terms of online media?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, just. Ascended in the sense that more people have access to the types of devices that can consume that easily and quickly and build it into their routines. Um, and same with podcasts, uh, which is just an evolution of talk radio and, and car radio. It's when you consume the media and how do you consume it? Is it in your commute? where you used to not have reception and you download a podcast and that's built into your routine, is it the your YouTube subscription feed because you get your notification at 7 a.m. in the morning that a new five minute video is up and you can watch that while you eat breakfast. That just takes a place of getting the newspaper delivered and reading that while you eat breakfast.
0: Okay, I have one more question about that which is, so when we are writing our articles on Ars Technica, we you know, we look at the metrics and we can see, we know you guys are reading it at work. Okay. It's it starts at like nine AM and it thanks, stops around way. five. Yeah, thanks. And so and it's it was the same thing when I was running IO9, we knew that it was all people at work. And I don't think do people watch video at work? Do you guys see the same pattern of like people get into work and they're like, now I'm gonna watch tested? <laughs>
2: Yes. <laughs> now I have to think about that because over with with A-B testing, we know, you know, based on our subscriber base, which is mostly distributed over YouTube right now, there's an optimal time that we publish videos of a certain length. If we publish a video that's 40 minutes long, it's a long interview, for example, at 7 a.m. in the morning, it's not going to do so well, but if it's a 5 to 10 minute video, then it might do so well, and that might be an optimal time, but 7 a.m. Pacific is 10 AM Eastern, so yeah, people are watching when they get to work. Uh,
0: so they're watching the short
2: videos yeah. in the morning. Absolutely. Yeah, that's
0: yeah. good. It's understanding workplaces. I guess people have headphones. Right. So they, yeah.
1: Can you give us a sense of sort of how does one of your videos go from sort of A to Z, like from the time that you think of doing it to the time that I'm watching it on my phone? You know, how how does that process go down? And what's the sort of production cycle, if you will? Right, the pipeline, right? Yeah. I think the pipeline and
2: one of the reasons I think we're successful is that we have no one type of video. The flexibility of YouTube being a distribution platform and being an incubator for videos is that we can make any type of video we want as long as we think there is, one, an interesting story there, or two, someone's going to watch it. So for something that's more thought out, like something that maybe we're working with a company to, uh, for embargoed coverage of a product or for going behind the scenes for a movie, that can be a very long production pipeline, which can, be, can deal with outlines and back-and-forth negotiations with the people we're working with, to production days on set, to hiring a crew, to editing and back-and-forth. And that's like the, the long end. You know, it can be six months between when we have the idea of shooting a video to when someone sees it, and that can get, you know, a couple hundred thousand views, but at the same time, if we, you know, Switch, for example, it comes out, and that same week comes out, we decide to make a laser cut 3D stand for it, and people are searching, we know people are going to be searching for that, that will get the same number of views, and we made that video in 45 minutes.
1: Yeah, since I've been at Rs for the last five years now, I sort of have come to this truth that sometimes is exciting and sometimes sad, which is that the internet giveth and the internet taketh away. That like sometimes you can put a lot of work into something and you'd be really excited about it, but it doesn't, the traffic isn't there or like for whatever reason the response with the audience that you hope was there isn't there. And then something that maybe took you 45 minutes to do just rockets to the top and is spread everywhere and everybody is, you know watching it and reading it and whatever.
2: Which doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that's viral either. And right. I know there are a lot of people we work with and we've collaborated with who are very attuned to making very viral videos. I think Simone, who's a part of our team, Simone Yetch, uh, who's the queen of shitty robots, uh, she has a great YouTube channel and she makes videos for us as well. She's very unabashed about the fact that it's a lot about her idea and how fast she works, but she knows she's going to make something that's going to be very gifable and that's going to be shared on Reddit or some other platform. That's, and she's had a very successful virality rate in her videos. But at the same time, we're also tuned to the fact that there's a, a search algorithm and no matter what platform that you distribute on, you're also going to be beholden to Google or Facebook and how they surface your content. And so praise be with the algorithm. <laughs> But like, you know, until, when we, they change un, it. until they change it, so if we do like a, a product review, right? And yeah. it used to be that, you know, you want to get a review out first because you're going to maybe get surfaced on Google and people are going to click it. And then Google doesn't care what the, the qualitative content of that story is. As long as people are clicking it, they feel, feel like they are satisfied and that's going to be the best link. And then you become the canonical story link for that topic. And the same thing works for, for YouTube and it works with having a great headline, a great thumbnail, and also the thing they care about, we've learned, is it's watch time. Uh, As long as if people watch, the more minutes people watch in the video, the more faith Google and YouTube have in the quality of that video, and the the higher it will will surface it in their search results.
0: That's interesting because if short video is what people want, then if you're putting out really short videos, you're never going to rise up very high, unless what they're talking about is like, you watched for more than 20 seconds.
2: Oh, no, it's, it's, it's why, um, you know, vloggers like Casey Neistat, who can make great 10-minute videos or even longer, and they're meticulously edited, if they can, if someone can keep your attention um, in video form for 20 minutes, uh, then they've earned that spot yeah. high up in the, in the search rankings. Uh, and we've had some success with that, with having, you know, we'll put like a, you know, going back to a product review, for example, we'll have a five minute or a four minute quick, user your flashy, everything you need to know, but then jump into an end of in-depth discussion or podcast format, but still be part of one video. And you'll find, we'll find that, you know, people stick around and that helps in the search results.
0: Have you ever had a video that blew up, went viral, whatever, however it got big, where you were just you guys were just scratching your heads. Like, why, why are people clicking
2: it's, it's on It's a this? really fun game. I know there are people's jobs who... <laughs> this is a like, fun
0: game for media people to yeah, play. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. We, we deduced it eventually, but, you know, uh, if, for anyone who makes, uh, doesn't make YouTube videos, you can track exactly how many people are watching your YouTube video and what video at exactly any moment of the day.
0: Yeah, at any second. At any
2: it's second, like, yeah. updates. It's like box office returns. Like, you know... Within the first hour, I can say, oh, I know this video is going to get 50,000 views over its lifetime because it has, that's what the curve is going to be like. Yeah. But sometimes then a video will jump up and it will, for some reason, get popped to trending. And I think there's definitely some human hands behind that. Or, you know, some random Russian forum will have linked your video and Uh then a bunch of people will have clicked on it, and (laughs) really It's definitely happened. It's happened to Um, me
0: for sure. Yeah. uh, And then I I think the (laughs) most- Not with video, but yeah.
2: The most surprising one was that one of our videos, which was a mold-making video, how to make a two-part mold, and we just use a a, a lightsaber, one of Adam Savage's lightsabers we made. We made a mold of that and showed people how to cast their own resin lightsabers. That was put on the sidebar next to the Force Awakens trailer when that came out, and so now that video (laughs) is 5 million views.
0: (laughs) But actually, that is really cool, how to make a mold of a lightsaber. Absolutely.
2: I mean, if it was a garbage link, right? then people would have clicked it and not watched it and the success rate would have been low. But we were just given that opportunity through the algorithm to be on the sidebar for that, for you know, one of the most highly anticipated movie trailers of all time.
1: That's awesome. Do you have a favorite video that you guys have done or like one that, that you just love even though it may not be the most trafficked or whatever? Like, is there one that sticks out for you? Oh, that's a really tough
2: question. Uh, most recently, so last year I was given the opportunity to go on a trip to the high Arctic, the Canadian Arctic, with astronaut Chris Hadfield and his team. And I spent two and a half weeks with my producer there traveling from Greenland to Canada. And six months later, we produced a really beautiful travel video that my producer, Joey Femelli, edited and narrated. It's awesome. It is really beautiful. I've seen it. It has 100,000 views, which is, you know, by any other metric is great, but it's not, you know, based on the amount of time we spent, how much it costs, it's not a very successful video. Water, exactly. Yeah. But it's something we're definitely super, super proud of.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I urge you to go see it. It yeah. is really just so
1: gorgeous. Is and that the sound kind of, is beautiful in is it, Is that too. just because of, like, the setting and the, what the story was, or is that... It, it
2: was uh, his, his... He wrote a whole script. It was the, the whole editing. He was given the time to think about how to tell the story he wanted to tell. It was honest, and it was, like, the footage didn't hurt. We were 50 feet away from a polar bear, so that was pretty (laughs) amazing.
0: In a giant
2: ship, looks great. Yeah, but, like, one of the things, uh, when you ask that question, the thing I think about is that every year, doing Tested, we get exposed to, and we get to go on these trips, and, like, every year is better than the next, and never would we imagine seven years ago when forming the site to talk about cell phones and go to events like CES and talk about, you know, curved TVs, did we think that seven years later we'd have the opportunity to visit Weta Workshop and see amazing animatronics and go on uh, behind the scenes of incredible blockbuster films or collaborate with astronauts on, you know, International Space Station or go to a place like CERN, but it's like things pop up and we just seize every opportunity that we can.
0: So um, you did just go behind the scenes on Alien Covenant. Yes. And I was curious, I know that you guys got a chance to look at the effects, the practical effects, the kind of fabrication. And I'm wondering, do you see any connection between the kinds of technologies and fabrication that people use in Hollywood and kind of consumer tech? Like, is there is it is the same stuff being used? Is it kind of like people in Hollywood have it five years before we do? Like, what's the
2: relationship there? There's definitely a relationship. To give you some context, a year ago we were invited on the set of Alien Covenant and uh, we went with Adam, Adam Savage, who used to work at ILM. You might have
0: heard of him. (laughs) And
2: his passion these days is exploring uh, maker culture in every form and expanding what people understand to be maker culture. It's not just people with CNC's or shops, it's also writing and composing music and sewing and costume making And a lot of that goes into the making of a blockbuster film. You know, there are people who have to write a script and compose a score and create the special effects. So the story we wanted to tell when we were there is interviewing all the people behind the scenes, the people who maybe don't get top billing, even in the the credit sequences. You know, who is it in that big block of special effects credits. Who is that person, you know, that's in that name there? What what did that person do? And oftentimes they did the most amazing thing and you saw it for half a second on screen, but we want to know what that process of making is. And it turns out they're using a lot of the same tools that are now accessible to people who are uh, makers themselves, whether it's 3D printing or laser cutting or CNC or vacuum forming. There's a a really great feedback loop because if you go to an event like Maker Faire, which we'll be at this weekend, and we've been at Maker Faire for 10 years now, we've seen just like, and I'm going to tie back to technology, just like with smartphones, the average level of understanding of what that technology is is just there's like a hockey uh, stick curve. Like 10 years ago, before the iPhone, people didn't understand, very few people understood camera technology, you know, frame rate, aperture, white balance. But these are things that are completely normalized with 10 years of people using phones in their pockets every day. And in the same vein, 10 years ago, Hollywood filmmaking was a magical thing. And it's still magical today, but we would watch... You know, shows like my favorite episode of Reading Rainbow when LeVar Burton went behind the scenes of Star Trek Next Generation and showed how they did the transporter effect, and this the swirling glitter. <laughs> That's magical. But now when we go to like what a workshop, they're using the same types of 3D printers, the same types of you know, SLA 3D printing technology that you'll find in a school that kids have access to and are designing with tools like Tinkercad and normalizing that type of Understanding of fabrication and how to create things that don't exist just because they're in your head and you didn't have the tools to make them before That's just creating the new special effects artists of tomorrow.
1: Do you guys feel like that by? pulling back the curtain a little bit that Whether on a movie like Alien Covenant does that make it more fun for you? Or does that kind of do you feel like that kind of ruins the magic a little bit it ruins the illusion a little bit? Absolutely. Yes (laughs) I'll never be able to honestly
2: review a movie like Alien Covenant, right? (laughs) Like, seeing what how the sausage is made, you can't... I'm more interested in that than what the final movie necessarily is going to be. But if I was given the choice, I would always choose how to see how the sausage is made. You know, there's plenty of movies and plenty of books and plenty of things I'm not going to be able to see behind the scenes that I can enjoy. I think there are very few, like, Holy Grail franchises or movies that I still wouldn't enjoy seeing how, how it was made and uh, then go into a cold. We definitely know people who don't watch trailers. My producer, Joey, doesn't watch any movie trailer. Literally walks out before the trailer starts and I can totally admire that. And I, I, I also love that he'll have his honest opinion of what the movie was when he first time sees it and he'll have a genuine surprise that wasn't spoiled to him in the trailer. But afterward, we can go back and look at the marketing campaign and look at I wish we could scrub through the internet like I wish I could go through everything cold and then go through and scrub through Twitter and see what everyone's hot takes were because I also want that water cooler talk because I also like that sizzle before the steak.
0: (laughs) Okay, so speaking of ruining things, I'm really curious because you do all these great builds, whether it's building like a really complicated device or just making Lego which is extremely complicated, as I discovered. <laughs> Has there ever been a build where you just totally wrecked something? Like, what was your worst wreck?
2: Literally in terms of wrecking something...
0: Like anti-building.
2: Yeah. Uh, we <laughs> haven't destroyed too many things. I think there's a little bit of misconception because we're affiliated with Adam and previously Adam and Jamie also, and they blew things up you know, every week on Mythbusters. But for us, we were, we're more... Excited about building things, um, yeah. whether it's kits or or designing our own things, but also taking things apart and putting them together. In okay. terms of wrecking things, the first thing that comes to mind is we built octocopter from 3D Robotics, and this was I want to say three or four years ago, before quadcopters, before you could you know buy a DJI quadcopter and and get some beautiful illegal aerial imagery over the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, <laughs> And we wanted to learn what it would take to build a really powerful quadcopter to carry a camera. And it was an octocopter, so it had eight propellers. And we spent a whole week building it. And we took it out and turned power on. It went up and then immediately flipped upside down and went straight to the ground and exploded. (laughs) And the props went everywhere. And uh, we never showed that footage. Oh come on! Wait. No, we, yeah, we never did.
0: Did you show the footage of yourselves building it, and then it was just like, oh well, and then that was great, Yes,
2: because <laughs> that's good content.
0: <laughs> it Dude, all turned you got out fine. Bit
1: crash video. Come no, on. I mean, I want
2: to see it, and it's an experience that, to me, it's taught me just like how low these barrier to entries are that technology to technologies these days. Right, anyone can go buy a quadcopter, and because of that low barrier to entry, it makes it really easy also to skip all the necessary. Regulatory instruction that you need and all the proper training. So when I take a quadcopter up now I always think back to that first experience and even though I didn't build the quadcopter I'm flying now It is you know a machine with a big battery in the sky and I never want to be the guy who took down a helicopter With a quadcopter and that's like that's the thought in my head. Don't be don't be that guy (laughs) But more recently we had a minor fiasco with an experiment we did We last year uh, teamed up and partnered with a group at Stanford, Night Crew Labs. They take up uh, weather balloons in various locations all over the the world, actually, and get some beautiful aerial photography. And we help them build one of their payloads to take a weather balloon up to do a, a nighttime aerial launch. I mean, it was an amazing project. Adam actually, we helped design what looked like an Apollo 11 capsule and painted it, made out of foam. It had specific requirements for the, uh, for how much heat it could retain, and how thick it could be, and how heavy it could be. And it had this really expensive Sony camera in there. And uh, had a two-stage payload, and they designed the team, they're brilliant, they made this parachute system that would activate based on temperature and time, that would also deploy, like the Apollo 11 capsule, three parachutes and float down to get this top-down imagery. It was, it was really awesome. Didn't work out exactly like that.
1: Um, <laughs> we took it out at
2: 2, 3 a.m., I wanna say, in an empty parking lot, and it went up. It was great, like, you had to inflate this giant weather balloon to go you know, 70, 80,000 feet up in the air, Middle of the night, everyone's super cold, but really pumped. The balloon launched and it's being tracked over GPS and we got to jump in our cars and track it because we know based on their wind data, it's going to go over the Bay Bridge and we're in like Daly City and the car wouldn't start. So we had a total Marty McFly moment where the car wouldn't start because we had turned the headlights on the entire time to light up the inflating of the balloon. And so we literally hit her against the steering wheel and we're like, the balloon's flying. We got to pick it up. And we found someone. It was three a.m. There was no one on the road. We found a security guard who had his car, jumped the battery, got on the road like an hour late. And then we got to the point where the place where the balloon was supposed, to, the payload was supposed to fall. And we got one stage, but we didn't get the second stage, and we completely lost it. And it was in like the Berkeley Hills or something. Did you <laughs> we ever it was find approximately it? Approximately there. Well, in in that moment, we were like, well, it could have. We lost tracking data on it. That's the one, that was the payload with the good camera. We got the one with the bad camera. <laughs> so this is the expense, everyone's freaking out. And I'm like, oh, I have a drone in my car. So I took a, I took a drone up and surveyed. And I thought it was really cool to review like 4K footage and try to you know, pixel peep and see if we could find a parachute. And eventually, it did turn up. Thankfully, the team wrote all their phone numbers and contact information on this styrofoam box and it fell in literally someone's backyard didn't hurt anyone, but they picked up the box and called it in and they found the footage. But that was like the biggest near disaster we had recently.
0: <laughs> I love that it was the car that was the missing link. Like yeah. I was I was imagining they were like and then we called Uber and like <laughs> Can you I don't know how you asked for like a jump from Uber, but you could could have done I that. I guess you so could,
2: yeah. Would know. they charge you?
0: I we could find out. That could be another episode. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to ask one more question and then we can open it up to questions from the audience. I know that you're really into Lego. Yes. I, I know that you have a lot of feelings about Lego. I'm an
2: AFOL, adult fan of Lego.
0: I guess that's like an old school brony or something. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm not sure. But anyway, my question is, what is it about Lego that you think appeals so much to geeks? I, I think it's a true thing that... You know, we, a lot of us are obsessed with it, but you especially.
2: Absolutely. And I think over the past couple of years, we've seen this resurgence of, of Lego popularity in Lego. And a lot of it's like they're, they like Disney or, are, you know, they're just, they make money printing machines, right? They're IP factories. and um, <laughs> But I think um, there's a satisfaction to putting something together, especially I, I think maybe 10 years ago when Lego, maybe like Star Wars had its like down period, it was This thing we all remembered fondly and talked about fondly, but never really did. And part of that was maybe we didn't feel like we had permission to do it as adults. Mm -hmm. Kind of like adult coloring books, right? Yeah. Like, it's It's too much like a kiddie thing. We should be making serious things as adults. But it's, it became this really fun, accessible, almost like a, you know, a board game night where we, everyone buy a Lego kit and come together and put something together. And there was something really zen about putting, following instructions with no words, just pictures, and putting something together. And yes, I know the, the theme of the Lego movie is that you can't just follow the instructions, you gotta make your own thing, and it's really fun to make your own thing also. But it's also fun to, from an engineering standpoint, to try to un- get into the mind of these designers who basically design sculptures that look amazing at, when they're done with thousands of pieces, but also have to be fun to put together. And we know uh, several people who uh, both work at LEGO and also are LEGO-certified master builders who are artists who work, and their medium is LEGO. And so we use LEGO as a tool to enable, um, to give permission, hopefully, to people who may not have built Lego uh, since, you know, the 70s or 80s, you know, even if they don't have kids, to build for themselves because building Lego is just gateway to, you know, going on Etsy and buying a laser-cut kit and building that and then, you know, building Lego Technic to build something that's more more mechanical um, so you can build your own 3D printer and then design something because it's, it all, it's all the same thing.
0: So it's basically a nefarious gateway activity to becoming someone who... He's a maker who probably, like, violates warranties and just goes down into the dark side.
2: Yes.
0: Um, Awesome. So if people have questions, Um, what's your favorite type of video to make?
2: The videos that we get the best responses to are probably Adam Savage's One Day Builds. It used to be Um. that I would be with Adam in front of camera and and interviewing him as he was building, and it's kind of become its own thing where we've developed a language Uh, between not only for him and the audience, but him and us behind this camera in terms of filming it. And filming a one day build is really fun because Adam works really fast. And so to know that he's going to have to, in the context of a 20 to 40 minute video, one, introduce the challenge, the problem solving conceit of the build because it can be something as simple as, you know, building Chewbacca's bandoliers, which itself is not very exciting, but It's for him very exciting because he's exploring a new technique or using a new tool. But to tell an interesting story and find the narrative in that day as we're filming, because there are no reshoots, there's no additional B-roll period. It all happens with one or two cameras. That is, it's absolutely thrilling. And then I know Joey, uh, who shoots and edits that, has a fun time, a ton of fun editing that also.
1: Do you have any thoughts on 360 video? 360
2: degree video. I'm much less interested in 360 degree video than I am in real VR experiences. 360 video is like, it's, it's a big panorama and I think the camera technologies aren't really there yet. Stereo 360 rigs are incredibly difficult to build and the workflow for stitching and I admire everyone working in it. I do love watching them, it's just that making them is, is really, really difficult. And we know some documentary filmmakers who are experimenting in 360 video I know Facebook's really pushing for, because it's, it's a big part of their new feed, but also their VR initiative. How do you tell a story where you can't control where the person's looking? And how do you edit that in a rectangle and not in, in VR? So I think there are a lot of cool, interesting problems there. But there's also the issue, it's, it's not real VR. You're not walking around in a space. You're still looking at something that's in a sphere, essentially. Hey, I was curious what videos have been the most successful in terms of people repeating them and showing you the results. Mmm. We get a lot of people who email photos of a Leatherman holster that they've made. Um, <laughs> really? And yes, as a part of Adam's everyday carry, he carries a, a Leatherman wave. And one video we did was him building an aluminum holster and it turns out people love making these things, and they're they're amazing.
1: Is that because it's an easy intro project, or it's not easy at all? Oh, okay, no,
2: no, no. And even in the video, he he, he screws it up the first time and has to, <laughs> to redo it. But it's something that it takes the tool that allows you to make things and, and like tell people who you are the leather you know whether it's the Leatherman or the laser pointer you carry and make something that's your own uh, that's a part of it. So I think that really resonated with people. I don't know, your personal top three things, if you wanted to go out and you wanted to actually document something really quickly,
1: what would you take? Oh, okay, what like oh, what's, what's what are my like things gear, I want to bring? What gear do you need? Oh, okay. gear, okay, not,
2: yeah, not things I want to a cover. Place, Got it. you you want to
0: document it. Got it. Um, what's
2: in your pocket? Definitely my uh, DSLR. Uh, I shoot with uh, a Canon 5D, but I know a lot of people who shoot video, they shoot with uh, Sony cameras. It would probably be, like, I can get away with a still camera and a voice recorder. Basically all, all I really want and need, a DSLR and a, and a voice recorder. Going back to that uh, Arctic trip, it was the other th- thing that was really amazing was we were there with a lot of YouTubers like Casey Neistat who shoot vlogs and have a Gorillapod with uh, a Sony A 7s pointed at them, and you know, an R- and and it can put a, a, with a small tripod, a, a small GoPro, and a laptop. I guess the laptop would be the third thing, and, and then shoot hours and hours of footage a day, and then edit something amazing that night in in their room. Like the technology just enable us to be really nimble about how. We can make our videos and, and tell our stories, but I I, I always love always loved, like the, the next best technology also.
0: So I'm curious about the kind of the other end of that. Like so you've gone out and you've documented something and you wanna get it to people, how do you do that now? Like is it should someone put it on YouTube? Should it be on YouTube and Facebook? Like what are the different ways that you think are best to reach the audience?
2: What's your goal, right? Maximum number of people
0: watching. Right, and 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 it
2: could be that. It could be, like, do you want to do it for a living? And a lot of people we meet at Comic-Con and Maker Faire and even at schools especially are younger people who want to be YouTubers, which is totally cool and awesome thing to want to be, but it's also a lot of work, right? It's And if you want to just get your stuff out there, I'd say don't worry about who's watching it, just get it out there be on a regular schedule is probably the number one thing. And put it on as many places as you can. You know, Facebook and Vimeo and YouTube and stream something live on Twitch. But try to understand who the people are watching those videos on those platforms and what are they there for. Uh, Someone who's going to watch a video on Facebook isn't necessarily the same person who's looking for the same thing, could be the same person, but looking for the same thing when they're looking for a video on Vimeo, and it could be a, the same exact footage, uh, cut differently, presented differently. So th- think about who that audience is on that platform, and, and sometimes it's not obvious, but most times it's how you use that platform. If you're on Facebook, how are you, when you scroll down, what stops you and gets you watching a video? Well, oftentimes it's the videos with the captions, because Facebook doesn't turn audio on until you mouse over, and that's just the type of video that gets a lot of views, so that's become its own form of a video. If it's on Vimeo, you know, the things that the staff picks that surface you to the top, it's not gonna be the the vlogs that you see on YouTube. It's gonna be something that someone you might describe as more cinematic or more arty, but it's it's just it's still just video, but that's just what that platform likes. Put it on all the platforms but try to put it in the way that makes sense.
1: Was there a shoot that you totally messed up, and and how did it, do you fix it if you got to fix it, sound, video, whatever, and was Adam totally pissed? (laughs) I don't think we've done a shoot
2: where, like, a camera turned off, and we didn't tell him, because that would be really bad. (laughs) We've definitely done shoots where, at the end of the shoot, we've all looked at each other and said, uh, maybe not the best idea, let's shelve it and let's think about it and a lot of that comes from wanting to make video as as fast as possible because of the opportunity that's there because it's going to be topical and timely or because there's an energy in the moment there are many times we publish a video and we look at back oh man i wish we really didn't didn't publish that talking to a, a lot of youtubers i think a lot of people feel also beholden to their schedule they feel like if they're traveling or they go to a convention like oh no i can't do my vlog for this week I need to I need to make a video this week, and I feel like that pushes people also to make content that they don't necessarily think is, is going to best represent them. But we're also not always given the luxury to do that. Um, so, it, it, you know, the the short answer is yes, we've we've done things that you know we're not the most proud of, and we there's always a video that we wish we could have gone back. I think the first time I went to CERN, we shot a video, and I chatted with some physicists and. Thinking about it, I don't want to describe it because it was so embarrassing. But we were also given an opportunity to go back to, back, uh, this year and, and redo that. So we're very, very lucky. And at the end of the day, I just think about how lucky I am to be able to do what I get to do and to work with the people I get to work with. And the thing that gets me continuing to do it is to always take a step back and realize how, how fortunate and how privileged we are to make video.
0: I'm an elementary school teacher, and STEM education is really hip right now. So what do you suggest for, you know, educating the next generation of makers?
2: It's a really good and broad question, right? I think a lot of that has to do with what the school wants you to do for your curriculum and how to fit things that maybe be, that may fit in STEM into the curriculum that maybe doesn't exactly mesh. I think a lot of it's, Making it okay to, to watch video on, on YouTube. There's so much good, awesome video online that fits in STEM that I, I I think educators and parents are maybe not always open to. And it's a lot of it's curating and a lot of it's giving permission to build a playlist for the kids to watch and show. Even if it's not purely educational, even if it is, you know, half educational and half entertainment. We get a lot of emails from parents who watch, you know, the builds with their kids, uh, whether it's, you know, Lego builds or model kit builds or Adam's one day builds, that's entertainment, but it's also giving them permission to, to get their hands on and and build things.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks you guys for coming out. Thanks for joining us, Norm. That was awesome. Yeah, no
1: problem.